Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. This is Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is a very special weekend episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston, and I'm joined today by Miss Amanda Griffiths. You might have heard of her before any time that we do an episode, probably. You've heard her. She's been on here a couple times as well. She is a doctoral student at UCLA, and apparently the investigative journalist in the field uh, that we've got for what's going on with the NIH, Fauci, EcoHealth Alliance, all of that whole fiasco. So she got, put out an article uh, on our website called What Did the NIH Know and When Did the NIH Know It? In October, by the way. Maybe should have been working for Project Veritas or something. But Amanda, <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Just kind of wrapping up my day here. We already did one episode earlier and I got it released and I'll get this one and get it released and go home and watch the new season of Ozark, which came out today. So I'm going to go going to go do that. Is California treating you well these days? Uh, California's treating me all right, as, as can be expected. You know, I, I have a few rants about the COVID policies, but that's uh, I'll save that for another time. So. Are they are they still crazy? Are they are they winding down some? What, what's it what's it looking like overall? They are still absolutely insane. However, they have just started to pivot. I got an email from the UC administration a couple of days ago telling us uh, breaking the news that this virus might eventually become endemic. Oh, so <laughs> okay, uh, there's there's that bandwagon that they've now finally joined, which is which is good. You know, baby steps. What a what a crazy projection by them that, that maybe yeah. we're going to have to live with this virus for quite some time. They're really stepping out there on a ledge. A little alt-right. Yeah, I'm a little bit worried. <laughs> it's a bit of yeah. a conspiracy theorist standpoint to have, but yeah, uh, that's, okay. yeah. that's their right to do that. That's fine. Okay, <laughs> so we've, we were just talking right before we started going. We've got a bit of a complicated timeline here with this whole thing that happened between NIH, uh, DARPA, EcoHealth Alliance, all this stuff going on, and we know a couple weeks ago, not quite two weeks ago, Project Veritas broke broke the news to the world, in fact, uh, that there had been a grant applied for uh, through DARPA that they had denied, and then NIH actually ended up giving that grant afterwards, and this was, this was uh, news to a lot of people, but you actually had all this information on our website in October, so just give us a bit of a rundown on this whole thing. 
Yeah, so people should, and there's always, always wonderful reporting by Nate as well at goodmorningliberty.us. So people should definitely check that out and read the stories. So the way that the timeline works is that there's a, there's EcoHealth, which is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization. And it applied, first of all, to DARPA. Uh, and that proposal, as we know, was rejected because it failed to adequately address the risks of gain-of-function research in DARPA's words. Uh a very, very similar sounding proposal was then drafted by EcoHealth and sent to the NIH. That proposal was subsequently granted. Now, this, this proposal, which is really kind of a copy pasta, uh, requested money to partner with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and work on constructing SARS-related bat coronaviruses uh, through a process called recombination. That's when you take multiple wild type bat coronaviruses in this case, and you engineer them together so that they can express certain characteristics. In EcoHealth's case, what they wanted to do is they wanted to get these viruses to express human-specific cleavage sites, which is very rare. So far, there is only one SARS-related bat coronavirus that's known to express uh, a human-specific cleavage site such that it can infect humans, and we'll talk about that a little bit. What EcoHealth wanted to be able to do is create novel SARS-related bat coronavirus variants so that they could develop ways of sequencing and testing for these new variants. This isn't particularly nefarious. There are a lot of coronavirus-related pandemics and epidemics. They're very contagious. The flu is a coronavirus. So this in and of itself isn't weird to me that EcoHealth wants to do this. So again, EcoHealth is rejected by DARPA, the proposals granted by the NIH. Between 2018 and 2019, two things happen. First is that EcoHealth conducted at least one experiment, I'm guessing more because that was the aim of their research, but they conducted one experiment at the Wuhan Institute. And this is an experiment that's referenced in the NIH's letter to Congress. What ended up happening is that scientists took two viruses, they combined them together so that one of them, WIV1, I do it phonetically, I call it WIV, because I'm going to be mentioning these guys a lot, WIV provided the backbone. Then there was this SHC014 virus, SHIC, that contributed a human-specific cleavage site, very similar or identical to uh, the furin cleavage site that we now know makes SARS-CoV-2 so infectious. Lab mice infected with this recombinant virus became sicker than mice infected with typical, uh, typical coronaviruses, and the virus also produced a one-log increase in growth, meaning that it enhanced pathogenesis by 10,000 times. Again, NIH disclosed all this in a letter to Congress on October 20th, 2021. Second thing that happened between 2018 and 2019 is that U.S. ambassadors went to the Wuhan lab. And they sent back these cables to the State Department saying, essentially, this ain't it. Um, they warned that the lab's work on bat coronaviruses was risking a new SARS-like pandemic. They talked about unsafe laboratory practices. Uh, they warned that researchers had found new coronaviruses that were able to infect humans and that had used the same route that original SARS used. And these cables, while they were sent in 2018 or 2019, were recovered in April 2020, at which point EcoHealth's research grant was rescinded. It was reinstated in August 2020, kind of under the radar. 
So in 21, in 2021, the Intercept receives and publishes EcoHealth's NIH proposal per FOIA request, and the news breaks about EcoHealth's DARPA proposal. So we start being able to look at the lab origins of this virus a little bit more closely. And in October 21, the NIH sent this letter to Congress talking about EcoHealth's 2019 experiment. That letter has since become the subject of some discussion uh, by Republicans mostly, and that's led to its own somewhat misleading fact check that was put out last week. So that's the timeline, and those uh, that was together the subject of these two pieces that I wrote in October. One thing I'm wondering is the the grant proposal that was sent to DARPA that was rejected. Is there much difference between the one that was sent to DARPA and the one that was sent to NIH? Looking at both of them, one thing is that the DARPA proposal requested more money. Uh, the second was that the DARPA proposal uh, emphasized or not emphasized perhaps, but it mentioned this plan to develop vaccines for bats. They were going to go and vaccinate bats in caves, which I'm really curious about. I want to know more details about that because that sounds kind of cute, actually, like in the little bats (laughs) vaccine cart, I would get behind that. But that kind of, uh, that I did not see in the NIH proposal. And so the NIH proposal focused more on developing these sequencing methods. So it turned out the bats were actually very strong anti-vaxxers. They're like, well, what else can we get to? Okay, humans, I think we can do that. And the rest is history from there. So there's a, before we get any deeper into this, I wanted to talk about why all of this is so important. Some people would look Mm -hmm. at all this and say, oh, well, you know, what happened happened. We don't really know for sure. But if this did in fact come from a lab or they were doing gain of function research, which uh, to me, it seems like they were, there needs to be some accountability more than likely if this is not something that just originated naturally, uh, magically out of the the same place where they were doing this research. Um, So there needs to be a little bit of accountability. That's why all of this is really important. We want to know if our government funded the research uh, that could have created this. So I do, I do find this all pretty important. Now the gain of function thing, I mean, they're not doing that right. Fauci said they're not doing gain of function. Um, well, that's the, that's the interesting question, right? So this research grant is still ongoing. Like I said, it was reinstated in August, 2020. And so the same research that's in that proposal that you can find on the intercept that's happening right now. Um, so it's still going on as for the question of whether it's gain of function, NIH claim that it is not. However, this is a really sticky question, and it's one of the main issues that, I, that I've taken up in, in these couple of pieces because the NIH claim in their letter that they didn't consider the research to be gain of function, or in their new phraseology, it's called enhanced pandemic potential pathogen research. So that's EP research. Uh, again, kind of cute name. <laughs> There's no way that NIH could not have considered the EcoHealth research gain of function and maintained its credibility as an agency. Um, It's demonstrably untruthful to claim that they did not know that this was gain of function research because when you read the terms of the grant proposal, which went across NIH's desk, uh, there's no other conclusion that you can draw. NIH say that the research didn't meet the standards for because the natural coronaviruses being used in the recombination experiment were not known to infect humans. There's no other way to put this 
that's a lie. The, nat- <laughs> the natural coronaviruses used in the recombination experiment, one of them is Schick. So Schick is unique. It's unique for its capacity to infect human cells via ACE2 binding. Uh, in 2012, EcoHealth researchers discovered this. And then in 2015, uh, University of North Carolina gain-of-function researchers were able to get the, this H- ACE2 binding to occur in a laboratory setting. EcoHealth also knew and mentions that uh, Schick can enhance viral mutation dramatically. There's another aspect of this, which is that the research involved humanized mice. And if you look at EcoHealth's proposal, they say that they're going to use humanized mice only in experiments where they're using viruses identified of significant human infection potential. So again, when you're writing, when you're reporting, you never want to call someone a liar. But this is not true. This is absolutely not true. It, did they? It seems like they went with the uh, the definition that the the way I would liken it is uh, it needed to be intentional uh, gain of function. They needed to lay it out as intentional, but or you need to have a reasonable suspicion that it would be a gain of function. But in this case, they were just studying what factors might increase the risk of the next uh, coronavirus emerging in people. So they're not really trying to create one. They just want to know what factors could create one. And when I think about how you figure out what those factors are, uh, you're going to have to keep testing it until it creates one, which seems like that's what you're doing. Well, yeah, even there, you can't get around it because in their proposal, EcoHealth say that what they're trying to do is they're trying to engineer viruses to enhance their transmissibility and make them transmissible to humans. They, they talk about, and, and on one page of their proposal, they say, look, in the wild, it's really hard and it takes a really long time for a virus to mutate from a non-human host to a human host. But what we wanna do is we wanna take these viruses, recombine them in a lab and accelerate that process so that you can mutate to being able to infect a human host. So, okay, so when I hear that, I think, well, there's no way that that would be considered gain-of-function research at, at all. That's not what that sounds like, which, uh, from what I hear, doesn't really exist anymore. Of course, it's it's the, uh, it's the EPPP, so an Enhanced Potential Pandemic Pathogen, is, uh, is what they're working on now. I was reading something good on uh, Senator Paul's website earlier where he essentially says that they are defining the way gain-of-function research by saying it doesn't exist unless you know in advance it will occur. And and to me, that's a little bit ridiculous. I, it, it goes against kind of the whole idea of scientific discovery when, it, when you think about it, knowing in advance that something's going to occur. There really would be no reason to study anything and figure out all of that. If you knew for sure that that's what was going to happen, then why would you even do it? Before we get any, into any more detail on these actual viruses, mm-hmm. so does it appears that Fauci might have actually lied to Congress, right? Or does he have some deniability on this? Uh, the only way that I can see in which Fauci has deniability is if he did not approve the proposal, never saw. I'm, I might be giving him an out now, but, mm. you know, if he didn't approve the proposal, never saw the proposal and someone told him we didn't think it was gain of function. So he can claim that he can throw someone under the bus. He can say, you know, an intern approved the proposal. Uh, so there is a slight amount of deniability there. But if he actually looked at the proposal as the director of NIAID, you would expect that he would. Um, and if he was familiar at all 
with the properties of Schick, with, with EcoHealth's prior research, it's very difficult uh, to, uh, to make that plausible or, or probable. There's a really interesting point you make in one of the two articles that you wrote up about this on the on the website, which is the NIH emphasizing that uh, natural viruses uh, used in the experiment could not possibly be SARS-CoV-2. And they, they don't mention uh, the other ones, the unnatural virus, but there's no way the natural viruses could be that. So they make this argument that the, that the natural virus is so far removed from the one that we have right now that there's no way it could have originated from this. But I don't feel like we're getting all of the information. Right. No, there are a whole lot of problems with, with that assertion. First of all, yeah, on page two of their letter, the NIH kind of try to cover themselves by saying, look, here are sequences for this, these handful of uh, naturally occurring bat coronaviruses. And all of them, experts agree, are <laughs> decades removed from SARS-CoV-2 evolutionarily, evolutionarily. And that's the point. That is exactly the point. You, you didn't have EcoHealth studying bat coronaviruses under a microscope, and then there's one that gets out. That's no one's accusation. What they were doing is they were recombining novel viruses. And when you look at the list of, of the viruses that NIH attaches and, and sequences, first of all, none of them are recombined viruses. Only one of them is one of the parent viruses of the virus mentioned in the experiment on page one. The really interesting one, Schick, we don't have a sequence for that. We don't have a sequence for the combined virus, Schick, with we don't have a sequence for any of its 10,000 times more pathogenic offspring. And that's weird to me because, again, EcoHealth's objective is to engineer viruses to be more transmissible and more infectious and have greater mutation rates so that they can look at new variants of novel coronaviruses and figure out ways to sequence and test for them. That's the goal. So if you have an experiment that does exactly what you need it to, which is take two viruses, recombine them to make one virus that's more pathogenic, mutates more quickly, more infectious than a typical coronaviruses, why would you not sequence those viruses as was the purpose of your entire proposal? This experiment did exactly what it was supposed to do. And we're being told that no one sequenced the viruses that you were conducting the experiments to be able to sequence. That's suspicious. I want to know where those sequences are. I want to know what those sequences are. I think that should be a national question. One of the issues with this is that all of this is so complicated that even reading all of the studies on this, reading, I mean, heck, even reading the article that you wrote for, for our web, it's complicated stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so how many people are really, truly going to dig into this and make sure that they get the, what's the sequencing for this specific virus right here? I need to know that if you don't have any type of background and medical research or anything like that, a lot of people are just not going to know. Not everyone's a doctor like you are, Amanda. They're just not going to know. <laughs> Training to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Where's S? Where's SHC zero one four? I have that missing in my uh, in my at home investigative journalist kit. It's just something <laughs> that's not going to happen. So I think they assume that they're just going to get away with it. I guess, and they're being helped uh, a lot 
right now by some fact checkers you were pointing out as well. I read some interesting fact checks as well when it came to this. And uh, of course, they do as much smear as possible inside of the fact checks about the Republicans creating the political witch hunt. But you mentioned one specifically from AP, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that I think this was AP. I'll, I'll, I'll go back and I'll, I'll make sure uh, this was a fact check that I saw recently is basically it was doing the standard thing that we see fact checks do a lot these days, which is so, so they said Republicans are claiming based on this letter that the NIH funded gain of function research, but the, the, the fact check was there's no evidence that SARS-CoV-2 came from the Wuhan lab. So what you do is, is you take, you, you, you putatively fact check a claim, but what you're really doing is fact checking a possible corollary that was not stipulated within that claim. Although... I actually, if someone were to claim there was a connection between the Schick with ancestor virus and SARS-CoV-2, I would not think that person was crazy. (laughs) There's an interesting thing they do where they say there's no evidence of of this thing. And Mm -hmm. what we need is an investigation into this stuff. And if you just say, well, they're... Some people want this to be investigated further, but fact check, there's no evidence showing that this is the case. Well, yeah, you need to go in and try and find the evidence. We need the investigation. And so you're putting out a fact check saying that there is no evidence that this specifically happened when those people are really calling for an investigation to see if this thing specifically happened. I always find that I always find that interesting where they where they decide to say that there is no evidence. And I always imagine that it has kind of a Star Wars thing to it. There is no evidence that this uh, originated. That every time I see that on Twitter, that is exactly what I imagine in my in my head and now it's now it's all I see what else are we missing here in the timeline uh, in the timeline there's I mean there's there's a lot that we don't know first of all we don't know about any other experiments that are conducted there that were conducted at the Wuhan Institute um, again we only know this one that NIH mentions in their letter um, and I I do think it's incredibly suspicious that we don't have sequences for, for those viruses. When again, that was the purpose of, of the entire research was to be able to sequence for these viruses that are created through recombination. Um, with, with the, the Schick virus, again, that that's interesting. And I, and I want to go back to it because again, as I said, in 2012, EcoHealth researchers found that Schick could bind to human ACE2 receptors um, via ACE, via something that is, either identical or similar to a furin cleavage site. The reason I'm not sure is because I'm not an evolutionary biologist. And when I'm, when I'm giving facts here, I I'm using quotes from EcoHealth's proposal. And so if I don't know something, I want to be extremely clear that I don't know it. Um, It sounds like it's a furin cleavage site, however. And so that's what, if you, when you look at the model of the, of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, you see this little uh, concave divot at the top. That's a furin cleavage site. So we, we find in 2012 that Schick has something remarkably similar uh, to this, if not identical to it, and that it can therefore infect human cells. Another thing that was discovered about Schick that EcoHealth knew is that it can mutate incredibly rapidly. It, it's, it's more able to mutate uh, and it, it, it mutates more quickly than most uh, RNA viruses, which already mutate incredibly fast. You mentioned the mutation uh, or the 
the evolution thing before, before that, uh, that NIH say, you know, this couldn't have evolved into SARS-CoV-2 in the wild. And as a way, as an example of how ridiculous that claim is, they give this example of hominid evolution. They say, you know, humans and chimpanzees are three to 4% genetically distinct, and they diverged from a common ancestor six to 7 million years ago. All true. But again, first of all, it is it's asinine to try and compare one episode of hominid evolution to viral evolution. It's, it's even stupid to try and compare one episode of hominid evolution to another episode of hominid evolution. But if we want to play that game, I don't think it's a game that, that NIH will win. Because when you look at human mutation, humans mutate at a rate of one nucleotide substitution per 60 million. And RNA viruses mutate at a rate of one nucleotide substitution per 1,000. So three to 4% genetic variance can be accomplished or rather can be, can be closed in a lot less time. We're talking about several factors of 10. When you hear this from then, it sounds, uh, it just all sounds so reasonable because I read the I read from their website that this is essentially uh, comparing humans to cows, right? Like that's the that's basically the same thing. That's what they said. Yeah. But like you mentioned, uh, comparing the, the way a virus mutates to the way that a human mutates or evolves over time, I don't think that those are exactly the same thing. And like you said, if they want to have that conversation, maybe that'd be a valuable point for them to really stick on right there, that those are basically the same thing. I don't think it's going to go very well for them. Uh, the other thing is, um, what I heard was, you know, these tests were being done in mice, and mice are different from from people, you know, so it's not really like they were testing things that worked on humans, right? There's another interesting part about the mice. Yeah, so that would all be true if we weren't using humanized mice. And humanized mice are, as the name suggests, they are mice that are engineered to express human-type characteristics. Usually that's human organ tissue or human cells. In this case, the mice were engineered to have human cells, at least in some respects. And, you know, as, as we've discussed, EcoHealth said they're going to use those humanized mice only if they were testing viruses that they knew could infect humans to go back to the gain of function point. So, so with the mice, they have these human properties for a reason, and that's to test their infective potential on humans. Interesting. Most people, including me, probably didn't know what a humanized <laughs> mouse was. And uh, I read up, I read about those today, I think for the first time I read yeah. about humanized mice. So yeah. that's an actual thing. Once again, all of this is so complicated for anyone who, one, has a short attention span, doesn't have any kind of medical background, maybe not very, uh, maybe not the most educated person in the world. So most of this is just going to fly right by pretty much everyone. It's going to get so complicated that you just kind of throw your hands up and say, well, there's nothing I can do about this. But what mm -hmm. I'm wondering is where would we actually go from here, uh, we're going to do an investigation into this. What's the likelihood that you would still find anything? Of course, they've destroyed every, all of the evidence, I'm sure. But where, where do you go from here? Uh, that, you know, that's the big question. I think, first of all, if Republicans take back, uh, take back Congress this year, I would expect them to try to have some, some kind of actual hearing. And in that case, the first thing 
the first thing I would want to see is I would want to have uh, DARPA officials come in and talk about why they rejected the proposal. Uh, I would want uh, civilian DARPA workers actually to come in and talk about why they rejected the proposal because they, they can give a new perspective, a new lens on why they felt that the proposal was inadequate and uh, tended to gain a function risks inadequately. Another thing that I would demand is I would demand all sequences from this research. And again, then you'd have to really pull through them if, if they're able to be produced and see which ones are related to that, that Schick virus, that Schick with virus, and then compare those with SARS-CoV-2. This is possible to do theoretically if those sequences have not been destroyed. And if anyone's destroying them, it's probably the CC. Well, I, again, this is speculation. I want to be clear. I would expect the CCP not to want those sequences ever to be released if there were some relationship. So if we don't have them, I want to know why we don't have them. And that's a big question. My guess is, my, my pessimistic view is that the likelihood of finding all those old sequences is about the likelihood of going through Hillary Clinton's old servers more more than likely. Uh, it's it, I, I don't know why, if there's anything bad on it, that they wouldn't have destroyed it by now since it wasn't released. Like, why would, oh yeah, okay, you got me. I, I got the, here you go, here's all the information. Right. It seems like they would have taken care of it by now. Going back to government now and all the power and all the funding that goes into this, we're potentially dealing with the consequences of a government that has too much power that uh, we haven't seen in quite a long time. And that is that potentially they aided in the creation of this. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe they did, that speculation. And uh, man, if we just don't need to decrease a little bit of their funding, a little bit of their power and get a little bit more transparency, don't you think? That's, that's the important point. I mean, we talked about this research proposal, right? Uh, several million dollars. That didn't come from the sky. That came from my money. That came from your money. Uh, that came from everyone in, in the audience. If they're, if they're paying taxes, they, they funded uh, this, this research um, that that many are now looking at in relation to the development of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. So yeah, it's it's incredibly uh, it, it's incredibly important that that we get some answers on this if we funded that. Uh, and I know this will be total speculation. Before I get to a couple other uh, couple other things I wanted to ask about, but if you were to place a speculative number on the percentage chance that this virus was in fact created. What do you think the percentage chance is? Just this is not rooted in some type of uh, data you've specifically found or that you uh, talked to someone behind the scenes. Just, right. just Amanda, what do you think the percentage chance is that this was created? See, see now you're trying to get me in trouble. Well, I, of course, <laughs> I, I, I believe it was absolutely created. I, I do not believe it was created nefariously. I do not believe it was released nefariously. Uh, there are some people who do. I don't. I think that's uh, for, for a number of reasons. I don't think that's that's any anywhere likely. Um, in terms of did this virus originate from this particular research? Again, as I said, someone comes up to me and says that Shikwiv uh, is an ancestor of SARS-CoV-2. I would be 75, 80% credulous uh, about that, um, you know, and that that might be a low ball. 
Yeah, and, and that might be a low ball. <laughs> the most important thing that we need to talk about, though, is how's your podcast going? <laughs> because I didn't, just... I didn't talk about it at first, but I mean, you and Maurice, who I think is still a person that exists. He exists. Uh, I haven't yeah. talked to him in a while. Yeah, how's that going? It's it's civil discord is is our podcast and it is going fantastically. We're continuing to to pick up uh, to pick up more listeners and yes, that is uh, I co-host that with the fantastic Maurice, who is not just my alter ego. He is actually a person <laughs> who exists, and you will hear him. Um, I can't do a Maurice voice, so you know you know it's him. Yeah, no podcast is going great. Um, you know, we will put an episode out uh, every week when we want to or when the internet wants to. Uh, so yeah, we're 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 kicking along. What kind of stuff do you guys normally cover? Is it a, you know, we try to go through as many news things as we can. You guys kind of drill down a little bit more on specific topics, right? Yeah, we'll usually pick, you know, two or three main topics. And sometimes there are things that are big in the media and sometimes there are things that are a little bit more obscure and want to dive into. Um, but we'll go through and they're, they're politics. They're also cultural Um one thing that I might want to discuss more in the future uh, is this foreign policy type stuff. You know, we haven't talked about China a whole lot. We have some. We, we haven't talked about Russia a whole lot. But uh, we talk about really shenanigans uh, from the two major parties, uh, as well as just culturally. And we share, um, we, we, share, we share personal stories about what's going on for Maurice in Texas, for me and the People's Republic of California. A couple of weeks ago, I relived... Um, my harrowing experience as a fourth grader doing a civil war unit, which was incredibly problematic. Um, okay. it, it culminated in a water balloon fight. And even at the time I was like, this is weird. This is super weird. So yeah, it's a grab bag. It's fun. So people should come join us. Um, I definitely think we could have some interesting foreign policy conversations right now when it comes mm -hmm. to the Russia-Ukraine situation and, and of course, the China situation. We won't get into all that right now, but I can just say I have my natural libertarian inclination, which is uh, I don't care what else goes on everywhere else. You know, that's uh, it's none of my business. And then sometimes I'm like, well, there is actually a real world out there full of people that could potentially want to do you harm. And should you should you ever be making any moves before they end up at uh, at your front door? I don't know that, you know, our episode, uh, the libertarian for whatever it was called, the, I don't know, libertarian, libertarian foreign, foreign policy, policy, something like that. Yeah. That was, what was, that was up in the top five last year. So I definitely mm -hmm. think we need to do some more. They'll do, yeah, do some more time about that. I'll, I'll do some more writing and talking about that because it is, it is a big issue. And I come as a recovering neocon. Uh, so I, I definitely know a couple different sides of, of, of the issue. In general, I believe that spending smarter on our military means spending less. However, uh, I believe in spending smarter and being a, you know, our, our foreign policy being an intelligent one, particularly when we talk about the issue with, with China right now, uh, we see how simply ignoring or getting along to going along can have really dire global consequences uh, and and can lead to a fear of even pushing on something because there's there's so much interconnection and there's so much intimidation. So it's more than just this really narrow set of, of principles that you can just adhere to and be okay. There, there are a number of factors that kind of question, okay, what is aggression? You know, what's an appropriate response to this kind of aggression? And I think with, with China, with Russia, we're, we're really seeing the, uh, the, the consequences of that. 
we're going to have to schedule this this episode <laughs> for sure because I just for had sure. all, all kinds of other questions when it pertains to uh, businesses setting up shop in, in China. That's been a really right. big one on my mind lately. Te Tesla expanding into China right now. And when I see that, I'm right. like, no, just don't. Just don't yeah. do it. Stay away from there. But it's so the allure of all the potential money, It's it just really, really gets you in there. And then you just don't know what they're going to do afterwards. Now, Tesla kind of makes all their patents public, so I guess that's not too big of a deal. That's one of one of their things. So maybe not as big of a deal as it is with the other ones. But anyway, I said we're not going to go all the way into this, even though right. I obviously want to. Is there anything else that we missed on this situation other than like five more hours of content? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure there are five more hours of content. I'm sure that, you know, if I were to to do a little bit more searching, I'd find more. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff that we don't know. We might never know. But I think the main takeaways here are that, you know, all this content is public. You can read the articles at goodmorningliberty.us. You can find the, the proposal on The Intercept. Uh, and you can find the DARPA proposal via drastic research. Uh, and you can look at all this yourself. Um, main takeaways are that this was demonstrably gain-of-function research and known to be so by any definition, including at the um, and that we need more information on this Schick virus and particularly on the recombinant virus that enhanced pathogenesis 10,000 fold. Uh, that's what I want to look at. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. I'm sorry about the issues that no one would have known about until I just said that right then. But no, I'm sorry no. about all the other issues and all the links to the civil discord the podcast, the Twitter, all of that good stuff are going to be in the show notes. So Amanda, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Nate.